Good morning, Renewal. Welcome to another morning of our Stay at Home Sunday morning podcast. We're continuing our journey through the book of Judges today. We'll be picking the story up in Judges chapter 9. If you recall, back in Judges chapter 8, Gideon had died. He was able to live to a very ripe old age. He had many wives and children. And then there's this one throwaway line about how Gideon had a son with a woman from Shechem, an Ephraimite woman who was his concubine, and and this son's name is Abimelech, which can roughly be translated, my father is king. And when you read that in chapter 8, it might seem like a little bit of a throwaway line, but there are no throwaway lines in scripture. When these names are mentioned in passing, oftentimes it's a literary clue to pay attention to this name and it's going to have some bearing on what happens next, especially in the book of Judges. This next chapter of Judges, chapter 9, revolves around this illegitimate king's son, Abimelech. And so uh, we'll start reading in Judges chapter 9, verse 1. We read, Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, who was Gideon, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all of his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you? to have all 70 of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you, or just one man. Remember, I am your flesh and blood. So if you recall in last week's story, part of the story, Gideon, who's Jerubbaal, had refused to be made king. He'd said to the Israelites when they wanted to make him king, he said, no, let God rule over you. I'm not going to rule over you. My sons aren't going to rule over you. Um, And that was his claim. But then it would seem that Israel was pretty determined to see him as their ruler in in one sense or another, at least in the tradition of the judges. And then on his passing, it would seem that his sons were sort of set to rule over Israel. His 70 sons were set to rule in some way or another. And so this man Abimelech is capitalizing on the rivalry between his mother's tribe, Ephraim, and his father's tribe, Manasseh. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He's capitalizing on just that kind of rivalry that's going on in Israel where these different tribes are sort of vying for position to be the the one in charge. And, And so he says to these men of this village, wouldn't you rather have me ruling over you than those dirtbags from the tribe of Manasseh? Uh, And so he says this to his mother's brothers. And in verse three, the brothers repeated it to all the citizens of Shechem. And so they were inclined to follow Abimelech because they said he's related to us. So they gave Abimelech 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth, and Abimelech used that to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. And then he went to his father's home, Gideon's town in Oprah, and on one stone, he murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Gideon. But Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, escaped by hiding. And then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. So there's obviously a lot happening here, but Abimelech goes to Gideon's hometown, kills all of his sons, and then ends up being crowned king since there's no one to compete with him for heir to the throne. And this is all happening with the citizens of Shechem in the city of Shechem. And there's a few things that you should know about this place. Uh, the city of Shechem is the place where in Genesis chapter 12, it's the same geographical place where Abraham met God. It was near Shechem that God promised his descendants, Abraham's descendants, the land of Canaan. And Abraham built an altar near Shechem under this great tree. Then 
a number of chapters later in Genesis 33, the next generation of Abraham's family, uh, Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson, settles back in Canaan and he buys land on the outskirts of Shechem. And in that place, Jacob sets up an altar to God and he names that place, Mighty is the God of Israel. And it's as if he's saying, my God promised this land to my father and my father's father and here I am dwelling in it. Look, God is mighty. He can do what he has promised to do. So Shechem has some real ties to the patriarchs and when they lived in Canaan. But as you continue to move on through Israel's history, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses commands that after entering the promised land, Israel is supposed to be gathered before two mountains. The whole nation should be gathered to two mountains when they enter the promised land, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, which Shechem is sitting right between the two mountains. And then Moses commanded that there would be blessings and curses linked to these two mountains in Israel, that Gerizim would be the mountain linked to blessings and Ebal would be the mountain linked to curses and that the nation was to be gathered there and these things, the law was to be read and and blessings and curses were to be proclaimed over the nation of Israel. And so in Joshua chapter 8, this actually ends up happening. According to Moses' command, Joshua gathers the nation there and these blessings and curses are read and a covenant between Israel and God is renewed. And so in the same place that God made a covenant with Abraham, the same place that uh, Jacob acknowledged God's covenant, here is the nation of Israel now gathered, renewing their covenant with God. Uh, And then at the end of Joshua's life, he gathers the nation of Israel uh, another time at Shechem to renew their covenant yet another time. This is his famous, choose this day who you will serve. And the nation's saying to Joshua, we're going to serve God. Far be it from us to ever forsake him. We're going to serve him. He's our God. Um, And so Joshua sets up a large stone under an oak tree again at Shechem. And and one of the things you notice when you read this passage from the end of the book of Joshua is that Joshua doesn't really seem convinced by Israel's claims of loyalty to God. He's like, yeah, you say you're going to serve God, but we'll see. And so he sets up this large stone and he says, this rock is going to be a witness between you and God, lest you deal falsely with God. And so he leaves the rock there. He leaves the book of the law there next to a sanctuary. This was a, this was a very sacred place where the nation of Israel would meet with God and where that covenant was Uh, was remembered and lived out. So Shechem represents the place where God meets his people. It represents the place where God makes covenant with his people. And uh, and it it represents the place where God's people covenant with him that, God, you are going to be our leader. And here, hopefully, you're thinking of uh, Gideon's words, that you don't need a king to rule over you. You, uh, the Lord will rule over you. So in this important place where all of these things happen between God and Israel, where Israel's meant to renew covenants with God, where they're meant to dedicate themselves to follow him, here we are now in Judges chapter 9, and in that place, they're setting up their own king. Right next to this rock pillar that maybe is the same one that Joshua set up, or a a monument in the place of the one that Joshua set up, right next to the the tree that, who knows, maybe it's the same tree that that Abraham sat under. We don't don't know. Uh, But anyhow, they're here, and instead of making a covenant with God or renewing their covenant with God, they are, they're setting up a rival covenant. They're setting up their own kingdom, choosing their own leader. Instead of 
of you know going along with the things that their leaders had set up before them between them and God today they're choosing to serve themselves instead of serving the Lord today they're choosing instead of being ruled by God they're choosing to be ruled by their own leader you know they and I'm sure for especially for the people from Shechem these uh uh Ephraimites they they're thinking man God keeps choosing these misfits to lead us like Gideon, who's from the other tribe. We want a leader who's like us. We want one who's from our family. We want one who understands the unique needs and preferences of our city. We want to choose our own king and and convince that Israel is better off with a Shechemite ruling uh, than whoever it might be that God has in mind for next in line. So this is what they've done in this sacred place. And, and sure, you know, Abimelech has murdered all of his half-brothers, and sure, he's surrounded himself with scoundrels of, and worthless men, but, but let's not forget, he's a Shechemite, he's one of us, he's got to be better than one of those sons of Manasseh. So in this sacred place where Israel and God uh, would make covenant together, Israel breaks that covenant. And I was, you know, just searching my mind for a comparable picture of how, what, what this would be like. And I think in many ways, this would sort of be like starting an affair in the place where you took your wedding vows. And, and beyond that, you know, remember the rock is there to witness between God and Israel, lest they not be faithful to the vows. It, it, it would be like starting an affair in the, in the church where you gave your wedding vows and in the presence of the witnesses who watched you sign your marriage certificate. I mean, this is, this is brazen treachery in the highest degree. This is betrayal. This is terrible. Gideon's youngest son, Jotham, who's mentioned, survives. He seems to be clued into what's going on here. And so he hears about what they're doing with Abimelech, and he stands up on Mount Gerizim, which is supposed to be the mountain of blessing. And he tells this short parable about an opportunistic thorn bush that would be ruler over all the trees. And he rebukes Israel for their lack of loyalty and gratitude to Gideon and Gideon's family. Um, and then he proclaims a curse over them. He, he says, if in all of this you've indeed been acting without good faith toward Gideon, he says, then may fire come from Abimelech and consume you. And may fire come from you and consume Abimelech. And, and not only has this place of covenant with God been changed, but this mountain of blessing becomes a mountain of curses. And, and I hope you're really catching on to the theme of this part of the story, because we talked last week about how Gideon's victory, the spoils of war, the blessing of God's favor in his life became a curse as God's people worshiped the provision rather than the provider, as they worshiped the created rather than the creator, and, and in their comfort as they forgot the Lord their God. And, and this is a reoccurring theme throughout the book of Judges, that what was meant to be a blessing or a place of blessing becomes a curse because of how people steward the blessings of God. And so in verse 22, after this king has ruled over Israel for three years, we begin to see this curse manifest in their lives. We read in verse 23 that God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. So they acted treacherously against Abimelech. We read that God did this in order that the crime against Gideon's 70 sons and the shedding of their blood would be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who helped him murder his brothers. And so for a period of time, for three years, Abimelech is ruling 
over all of Israel, the text says. So he's this king who's ruling over all of Israel. Uh, you know, Saul is the first king appointed by God in Israel, but Israel, Israel had a king before Saul. Um, anyhow, for three years, I'm sure they're thinking, we got away with it. It went really well. Yeah, I murdered all my brothers and I became king. That treachery, that betrayal worked out just fine. And yet, the God of the universe is not mocked. We reap what we sow. And so after three years, the citizens of Shechem are suddenly not so excited about their choice for leader. And there's animosity here. And the author of Judges sees God's divine will behind this growing animosity. You know, God, God, God is a God who will not be mocked. These terrible people are going to reap what they've sowed with the seeds of violence and betrayal. And so the people begin to set ambushes and rob any Israelites who pass near their city. And King Abimelech finds out about this and he marches against the city. And long story short, he fights against the citizens of Shechem. Now remember, these citizens are his own kin. So we're that theme of family killing family, brother raising sword against brother, it's, it's continuing on here. And, and so Abimelech and his forces are, are victorious. They kill many, many of the Shechemites. And they beat them back to the point where the the remaining Shechemites are holed up inside this tower stronghold in the city. And Abimelech leads his men to stack wood around the tire, uh, the tower, sorry, and to burn the whole thing down with everyone in it. And the author records that over a thousand people died inside that tower, including uh, women and children. And at this point, it might be the end of the story, but it's not. Abimelech marches on to another city. The best. That's uh, it's about ten miles northeast of this newly demolished Shechem, and he begins to make war against that city as well. We're not really clued into the reasons why, but I'm sure intelligent people have figured it out. I just I have no idea, and we don't have time to get into that anyways. But in Thebes, the residents flee into a stronghold in their city, and Abimelech marches up to it to set fire on it, the way he did in the last city. But as he's marching up to it, a woman who's up on the wall casts down a stone and it hits him in the head, mortally wounding him. And so there he's lying, mortally wounded, and he tries to talk his armor bearer into running him through with a sword because he doesn't want anyone to know that a woman killed him. And we can surmise that that plan failed since it's recorded for all of history how this woman killed Abimelech. But The armor bearer does run him through with his sword and honor his request in that as well. Anyhow, in verse 55, we read that when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they all went home. And then verse 56 says, Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. And then God also made the people of Shechem pay for all of their wickedness. And the curse of Jotham, son of Jerubel, came on them. This curse that was spoken from the mountain of blessing stuck on them. And I want to end just talking a little bit about what that means for us. What does it mean when these curses stick, when they have staying power in the lives of God's people? I think, first off, we don't want to make this mistake and think that that somehow this curse stuck because of the authority from which Jotham spoke. It wasn't because Jotham was a powerful prophet that this curse stuck on him. And, and I don't think we want to think that the curse stuck because Mount Gerizim was a holy place and that the people of God had violated covenant in a holy place. That's not why curses stick either. In fact, in the day when they met there and with Joshua and the covenant was read and the blessings and curses were proclaimed, all of those things were conditional on one thing, 
whether or not the people of God would be faithful to God. And so I think these curses stuck, not because Jotham was a powerful prophet or because Mount Gerizim was a holy place, but it stuck because all of the involved parties, Abimelech, the people of Shechem, the people of Israel, all of the involved parties persisted in the wickedness of their ways for years, for three years. And at any point during those three years, they could have returned to the Lord. They could have repented. They could have asked for mercy. And I believe that they would have found that. But part of the reason that we are looking at these stories and studying these books is because we're in a season where we're inviting the Holy Spirit to search our own hearts. We do not want to persist another day in any wickedness that we may be walking in. And so we ask the question, is there any wickedness inside of us? Holy Spirit, come and search our hearts. Are there any blessings in our lives that are in danger of becoming curses? Is there some kind of repayment that is being stored up for all of the wickedness that we have done to others? And if there is, Lord, show us the air in our ways. Let us not persist in our evil a single day more, but bring us back to you. Proverbs 26 tells us that a curse without cause does not come to repent to rest. A curse that does not have a cause does not stick. And so my prayer in this season is that uh, our repentance would result in any curses having no staying power in our lives. That, that we would be people who would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We would turn from our wicked ways and wherever there may be curses that have been proclaimed over us or, or you know, destinies of, of death and tragedy that we are headed towards, uh, that through repentance they would not have the staying power in our lives. They would not rest, come to rest, but uh, we would be set free from them uh, by the power of God as we seek to live God's way in our lives. And so... Uh, I just want to encourage you this week to seek to live God's way, uh, to not fall into temptation, to not fall into old habits, to not persist in any wickedness, but to allow the Holy Spirit to bring your mind to those things and to flee from them and uh, walk in the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you continue to uh, preserve these stories for us that we might learn from them. Uh, We thank you that you are gracious and faithful even when your people are not and we thank you that, um, that even these stories that, that have tragic endings, uh, we know that it, at the end of things, Jesus gets to rewrite the ending for humanity. And so we thank you that uh, there is a destiny of life and salvation and uh, reconciliation for those who are in Jesus. And so uh, we want to be found in you today, and we want to be walking with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.